everyone. I'm Raj. I'm Ashwin. And I'm Eddie. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. We are a podcast dedicated exclusively to hematologic malignancies, where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcast in whichever app you listen to your podcasts in. Today, we are excited to talk about management of newly diagnosed light chain amyloidosis. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Angela Dispensieri from the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Dispensieri is a Serene M. and Francis C. Terling Professor of Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Rochester. She's an expert in all things plasma cell disorders and has led several landmark papers and clinical trials in AL amyloidosis. Thank you so much, Dr. Dispensieri, for joining us. To start with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your clinical and research focus? Yeah, well, thank you for the kind invitation. So as mentioned, I'm a hematologist with an interest in plasma cell disorders. My biggest passions are the more unusual plasma cell disorders like AL amyloidosis, Palm syndrome, etc. And I have a laboratory bent in terms of clinical labs. So tests like tissue mass spec and blood mass spec and work with free light chain and so forth. So it's a very fun practice and journey with a lot of very interesting things going on. All right, so let's jump right in. We'll start with the case and discuss the data as we go. So this is a patient that I saw a couple of years ago in clinics. So it's a 74-year-old male with a history of aortic valve disease presented to his cardiologist initially with worsening shortness of breath. He underwent tower and post-tower, he developed complete heart block requiring pacemaker and also developed unilateral pleural effusion that needed several thoracentesis. So he had recurrent unilateral pleural effusions. Subsequently, he was seen by another cardiologist where infiltrative cardiomyopathy was suspected since echocardiogram showed a thickened intraventricular septum and also a decreased global longitudinal strain. Patient then underwent an endomyocardial biopsy to find out the etiology of the infiltrative cardiomyopathy, which confirmed AL amyloidosis lambda type on mass spectrometry. Subsequently, patient was seen by hematologist and further workup showed a lambda light chain monoclonal gammopathy with a serum lambda of 25 milligrams per deciliter and kappa of 1.2 milligram per deciliter. His NT-proBNP was approximately 4,000 picogram per ml and a high sensitivity troponin T was 67 nanogram per liter. He was then he then underwent a bone marrow biopsy that showed 20% lambda restricted plasma cells with fish showing T1114 and gain 1Q with three copies. And he was started on Dara VCT or Dara Cybody frontline therapy. So, Dr. Dispensary, with that case in the background, can you tell us a little bit about what is AL amyloidosis and how it is different from, let's say, TTR amyloidosis or how it's different from myeloma? It's just a 10,000 foot overview of AL amyloidosis. Sure. So again, I'm really glad that you had a heart biopsy here because I think with the idea that he had a TAVR and he's 74, that um, ATTR amyloid could certainly be within the differential, but um, by doing a heart biopsy, you've clearly excluded the possibility that this is a person with ATTR cardiomyopathy with a smoldering myeloma or something like that. So Again, what is AL amyloidosis? So it is a plasma cell disorder and median number of plasma cells is about 10. So in a way, half meet criteria for myeloma and the other half don't. They're more like a bone marrow of a MGUS type patient. But the trick with the AL is that the light chains really tend to be quite toxic and they have this tendency to fold upon themselves and basically form fibrils within tissues that can damage those organs. And the most commonly affected are heart, kidney, liver, and then nerve and GI are kind of less. And so again, patients, I often think of it as AL patients are have a relatively healthy bone marrow, but sick organs, whereas often myeloma patients have good organs, but a sick bone marrow. In terms of ATTR that you brought up, so that stands for amyloid transthyretin, and that comes in sort of two flavors. One is what we call wild type, where the transthyretin, which is basically a protein that we all carry, it's made in the liver, it basically is a chaperone protein or thyroid hormone, but, and retinol, retin-A, but the long and the short is it can, that protein can also fold on itself and make amyloid fibrils. It has nothing to do with 
bone marrow. It has nothing to do with light chains. It's not a hematologic disorder, but uh, the non-mutated uh, transthyretin molecule, uh, the older we get, the higher risk we are for developing TTR amyloid, and that tends to affect the heart and the soft tissues. And there are actually a number of therapies now available, FDA-approved therapies to treat that. So very important to make sure that the patient in front of you not only has a as has amyloid, but it's AL amyloid and not TTR amyloid. So the age-related type of amyloid, ATTR amyloid wild type, that is more common in older men. It can occur in older women, but it increases with advancing age. Nearly 20% of autopsy specimens of people over the age 80 or so um, will actually have ATTR in their heart. So that's a real important diagnosis. There's a hereditary form where people have a mutated uh, variant that's even less common than AL, um, but that gets to the importance of not just thinking of amyloidosis in somebody who has a cardiomyopathy or a nephrotic syndrome or kind of a cholestatic liver picture or small fiber neuropathy or autonomic dysfunction, but also think of the diagnosis, make a diagnosis with a biopsy with Congo red, but you're only halfway there because you really do need to type that amyloid about 30% of patients with ATTR wild type will also have a small monoclonal protein because these are both diseases or conditions of the elderly. And so the, the, the formula of monoclonal protein and the serum and plasma cells in the bone marrow plus amyloid does not always mean that it's AL amyloidosis. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. And we often see in the clinic when we get these patients referred, sometimes they have had a PYP scan and it's to put everything together. So I'll ask you a question about the biopsy. So in this patient, endomyocardial biopsy was already performed, so it was easy. But if you get a patient in your clinic who has, let's say, a lambda MGUS and also has cardiomyopathy and you are strongly suspecting, let's say, AL amyloidosis based on the clinical phenotype, how do you go about tissue diagnosis in that patient. If you have fat, pad, bone marrow, and organ biopsy, how do you put everything together and what sequence do you biopsy the patient at? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. In terms of, obviously, not everybody wants to do an endomyocardial biopsy and it's not appropriate in many instances. And so a fat is a great test. It's going to be positive in 80 or 80 to 85% of patients with AL and I'm positive in only about 15% of patients with ATTR. A bone marrow was going to be positive in again, 60 plus percent of patients with AL. It can be positive in the ATTR patients too. So I've made ATTR as a diagnosis off of a bone marrow. You see Congo red positive, type it and it's ATTR. So in this patient, for sure, I could would start with a fat if a heart hadn't been done. The other important thing that is helpful when you're looking at somebody who has an amyloid cardiomyopathy in general, if it's a huge part, I mean, we're talking wall thicknesses of 16 millimeters or something, 17 millimeters, and the patient is like mildly symptomatic, mild to moderately symptomatic, that's not AL. <laughs> Patients um, with ATTR wild type, uh, they can have hearts, wall thicknesses of 20 millimeters or whatever, and they're still functioning well. An AL patient will be much sicker. So that in part would give you a hint uh, that um, perhaps um, thinking along those lines, I still want to type and everything, but I can feel like rest maybe assure if this is kind of a, a big heart, but not a huge heart and the patient's really symptomatic, then that's more likely going to be AL and I'm happy with my fat and I don't have to guess that the patient may have two diseases at once, um, which we've certainly seen. Patients can have both AL and ATTR at the same time and, and require two totally different types of therapy. The other helpful thing is that if a patient has, for example, an amyloid cardiomyopathy and they have nephrotic syndrome or proteinuria, and they don't have another good reason, like they don't have diabetes or something like that, that is also going to make me feel more 
reassured that this is going to be an AL and I can trust that if I get that fat and it's positive and typed as Lambda or Kappa, that I I don't have to kind of go crazy, look going after the heart as well as a, a tissue to make sure that I'm not having two diagnoses at the same time. But there are instances where you have this exact same story that you're telling me and you biopsy the heart and it's ATTR and they have a smoldering myeloma or an MGUS underlying. So it does take a little finesse in the thought process. Yeah, so basically at least one tissue is absolutely essential, right? Before in AL, uh, one yeah. tissue is necessary, at least one. 100%. Yeah. Um, you really want to get a tissue diagnosis. And then you want to not only get amyloid, but you want to type it. Yeah. And by typing, we type by mass spect, which is the gold standard. Some centers also do like immunohistochemistry or immunofluorescence. So what do you typically tell, let's say, the community doctors? Like, do does everybody have to send to Mayo for mass spect? Or if there is a, if they can do IHC locally, is that acceptable or not? Because we get this question a lot uh, from yeah. community doctors. Yeah. So I really think that mass spec is the gold standard. And I'm not just saying it because we do it at Mayo and so on and so forth. I mean, it it works so well. Not only will you potentially diagnose amyloids that you were thinking of, but you might diagnose an amyloid that you weren't thinking of. That's number one. Number is depending on where your pathologist is and who your pathologist is, they, I've seen some crazy immunohistochemistry coming out. I mean, just bizarro, bizarro things. There are certain places in the world where they do they can do amyloid immunohistochemistry with antibodies that are actually raised against different types of amyloid. And in those hands with those reagents, I think that's a possibility. But in most of the US, in terms of there's immunohistochemistry done, it's not using the best antibodies. And so you're going to end up with error. Immunofluorescence of the kidney, uh, that works amongst all of the different things. It works the best, but still we've shown that mass spec even works better than immunofluorescence. So across the board, we really think that typing is with mass spec is important. Now you could argue, what if you have somebody who has periorbital purpura and they have a big tongue and, and they have nephrotic syndrome and autonomic dysfunction, peripheral neuropathy, cardiomyopathy. I mean, they have like everything. Um, Could you get away without? Sure, I guess. Um, But being a purist, I'd still say type it. But there's some things that are sort of almost pathognomonic or amyloid, but they're not very, they're not very sensitive, but periorbital purpura and the purpura on the neck, you don't get that in other types of amyloid typically. So if you're on a budget or you can't make it happen, there are those really rare instances where you could get away with other means, but for like 99 out of hundred, I would really try to encourage that um, the typing is done by mass spectrometry. Right. Before we go on to the treatment, just some uh, thoughts on risk stratification. So when you see a newly diagnosed patient like this, what staging criteria do you use? We have the Mayo 2004 and 2012 staging. We have the renal staging from the Italian group and some other factors as well. So how do you risk stratify a patient when you see them first time? Yeah. So, I mean, again, the the cardiac biomarkers, NT, proven T, and troponin T, if you don't have troponin T, you can do it with troponin I. There's sort of uh, cut points for that. If you don't have NT, proven P, there's BNP, but I don't think it's as good because there are too many BNP assays out in the market. And so really standardizing cut points is harder, but we, on our uh, webpage, we have conversions and whatever, but the long and the short is the troponin and the NT, proven P are essential to really give you a sense of what's going on with the patient because early death is all about the heart. If if patients have significant cardiac involvement, there's a risk, again, 30, if they have significant cardiac involvement, 30, 40% are going to unfortunately die within the the first three months and 80%, maybe now with modern therapies like Dara that we'll talk about, et cetera, maybe not quite 80% at one year. But when we look back in the pre-Dara era, patients with 
like an NT-propion P of 8,500 the state with the 2004 European modification with the NT-propion P of greater than 8,500 and a troponin T that's above threshold. Also, those patients really had dismal outcomes. And so cardiac biomarkers, free light chain, all really important. This patient here would be a 3A. If you lose the 2004 system and a 2012 system, it would be a stage four patient. And so it is a high-risk patient just based on the cardiac. And so really watching this patient carefully being you know, fluid management, electrolyte management are all going to be important supportive care bits as uh, you go along. Other things that are incredibly prognostic are blood pressure. The, the patients who have lower blood pressure, who have really true autonomic dysfunction, so not that you overdiurese them and they're a little lightheaded because you gave them too much Lasix because they had fluid retention, but people who really have blood pressures that drop when they stand and their heart rates don't go up, those patients are really very much at risk. And so you kind of also are thinking about kind of kid glove management with that. And, and again, focusing a lot on supportive care, whether they need mitodrine, typically fluorinep isn't so helpful because it worsens the fluid retention. So if they have nephrotic syndrome and cardiomyopathy, you don't want fluorinep or increased salt to manage the low blood pressure. But those low blood pressure people are also clinically at risk. Then you get to the things that are the hematologic bits. So again, the 2012 system is incorporating the light chain, which is getting a little bit to plasma cell biology and outside of these staging systems. And this is really almost sort of more important for the longer term outcome for the patient are going to be things like the 1Q, which is an adverse prognostic factor. The other is the T1114 is kind of a, a mixed bag. So data would suggest that ortezomib doesn't work quite as well in the 1114 patients, though it works. But if you kind of look at somebody with 1114 versus not, perhaps a slightly less inferior kind of response rate, the alkylators can compensate for that, certainly. And daratumumab certainly can compensate for that. The nice thing about 1114, and we'll talk about that, I suspect, in a little bit, is that it opens the, the world for the BCL2 inhibitors, drugs like um, venetoclax. So that's kind of a nice thing to see. And we see the 1114 in about 50% of patients. The other thing that is uh, pertinent in this patient, 20% lambda-restricted plasma cells. Again, the more myeloma-like the bone marrow is, the more creepy I get inside. So if there are some of the typical myelomas, fish abnormalities or cytogenetic abnormalities, I kind of look at that patient a little bit differently. 20% is kind of a cut point where, again, it's getting a little bit more, you're sort of thinking that I'm going to probably have to do a wee bit more than I might in somebody who has only 5% plasma cells. And so just kind of how durable is their remission going to be, or how long am I going to be using therapy for, I, I might want to use a full course rather than a shortened course. So those are going to be important pieces. In terms of renal staging, yeah, that, that works with proteinuria and the EGFR. That kind of gives you a sense of the likelihood that this patient may end up on dialysis. But as you're first seeing a patient, you're thinking life and death, I need to get this person through the first six months, year. And once they survive that, then you kind of go, whew, that's good news. And then it's really kind of, let's manage the plasma cell disorder and look for durability and so forth. But when the ones are have significant cardiac, that first six months year is really critical. Yeah, that first six months is really, especially when I started, it was really anxiety provoking taking care of those patients for six months. One quick question, when these patients you have, let's say a patient in the hospital, biopsy has been done, mass spec is pending, but you are clinically very convinced that this is AL, would you start Cybody before the typing is back technically, or, or would you? I, if I am worried about somebody and I feel pretty good about it, if one dose of chemo, I mean, you're honest with the patient say, look, I am really worried about you and I'd like to get therapy as soon as possible. I think that nine times out of 10, I'm going to be right. Or 99 out of hundred, I'm going to be right here that the, this is the right diagnosis and that this therapy is appropriate. So we're going to start. Now, if you have somebody with like just nephrotic syndrome or something like that, 
then I, I, I can wait a week. It's not going to be the end all, but if they have very significant cardiomyopathy, it's kind of like a ticking time bomb. I would go forward again with full disclosure to the patient why I'm doing that. Yeah, that sounds like a very reasonable sort of patient-centered way to approach that kind of time. Time is heart setting. So we want to talk now about the treatment of newly diagnosed ALM amyloidosis, specifically targeting the plasma cell clone in the bone marrow. As we alluded to earlier, this patient was started on Darasibor D. For the sake of discussion, let's assume that this patient is ineligible for autologous stem cell transplantation, which is the case uh, with the majority of patients with AL amyloidosis diagnosis. Can you give us a bit of a historical context and overview of how we got to Darasibor D as a standard of care? Yeah. So back in the day, when I started, we were even using melphalan and prednisone, and it was these were not bright days, <laughs> sort of, A, we didn't have free light chains to measure, so it was all about immunofixed positive and negative. Most patients didn't have a measurable M-spike. But then there was, and you had responses in maybe 30% of patients. Then the evolution was melphalan and dex. Just replacing um, the prednisone with dexamethasone kind of got up to partial response rates about 50%. And so that was really amazing. And even the VGPR rate was close to a, a third of patients. So that made a dent. And then bortezomib came along and that looked kind of interesting too. And VD was used and then BMD. And there was even a randomized trial comparing melphalandex versus bortezomib melphalandex. And we're getting again, now, instead of a, a partial response rate of 50%, we're getting more of a 80% kind of response rate. The deep responses, CRs in this um, setting, were really maybe closer to mm, 10, 20%. And then also at the same time, VCD or Cyborg D was sort of being looked at. And that too was looking pretty good. Again, using that Velcade really seem to make a difference. There's a big controversy whether you really need the alkylator or not, and there's sort of retrospective studies saying it might not add much. I think that perhaps in the 11-14 patients or, and or patients with the higher tumor burden, it might add a little more. But again, it, the regimens are the PI, bortezomib or Velcade, and either melphalan or cytoxin. And then daratumumab, that was like an amazing drug is even a single agent that was giving response rates of better than 70, 80%. And so the idea of using daratumumab, bortezomib, cyclophosphamide, and dex was kind of born. And then that was the genesis of the Andromeda trial, which clearly showed that adding the daratumumab to the VCD superior therapy with near almost all over 90% of patients having a hematologic response, a partial response, and like nearly 90% having a VGPR better and CRs in more than 50%, which is, these are day, these are numbers that are as good as transplant, at least when you look at hematologic response. And so this has really been major progress for our patients with AL amyloidosis. Yeah, it's a great segue to talk about Andromeda, which was a phase three trial in patients with stage one to stage three AL amyloid, which compared six cycles of Darasibor D followed by Dara maintenance for 18 cycles with Cybor D six cycles. And it's important to note that the treatment duration was six cycles in the control arm and two years in the experimental arm. Um, as you alluded to, the primary endpoint of the trial was CR rate and the trial easily met its primary endpoint with almost three times the CR rate in the DARA cyborg D arm compared to the cyborg D arm with about 50% versus 18%. So what do you think about how that trial was designed um, and the sort of elements of the trial design? Yeah, I mean, I'm really grateful that it was done. I think it's an amazing trial, um, but nothing's perfect. <laughs> including this trial. Um, the fact that, and you already alluded it, six months versus 24 months of therapy doesn't feel exactly like a fair contest, right? So it was sort of addressing a four-drug regimen, but then the four-drug regimen gets an 18-month maintenance, whereas the three-drug regimen just gets six months of therapy and no maintenance. And I, I feel like 
I think we would answer more questions in a way if we had sort of maybe not had the the 18 month maintenance bit as part of it. And I, I think it still would be a very positive study, but I understand. I mean, it was a huge lift for Janssen to even do this trial, but it does leave you know, and beg the question, do you really need 18 months of maintenance daratumumab? Nobody knows the answer to that. I think we'll kind of work on that. We currently have like a pragmatic trial looking at response-based and and shortening the duration of daratumumab usage. Again, in the relapsed uh, or refractory AL population studies done uh, several years ago now, single-agent daratumumab, I mean, six months of therapy and patients could have really long remissions. And so and even also what we know from the VT, the DARA VT Cassiopeia trial in myeloma, the idea that was DARA VTD, thalpate index, and it was sort of a two by two. And it appears in looking at subgroup analyses that, you know, whether you got DARA maintenance or DARA induction, or you got it all the way through, getting some DARA was seen to be almost equally good. And so again, here using an alkylator and the PI and the DEX and the DARA, do we need so long a therapy more to follow? So at the moment you still give the maintenance, but you're hoping that studies will allow us to shorten it in future. Is that the current state or how do you do things? Yeah, you sort of feel, I mean, giving a treatment once, a month, once every four weeks, isn't the most horrible thing in the world. So with that in mind, I tend to just say, we'll do the Andromeda trial and, and just kind of do it until we see more data and we can make better decisions. I don't think somebody could be faulted for abbreviating it at all. I think it would be better to do it on a trial so we can learn something and be a little more dogmatic in what we say, but it is what it is. And what do you think about hematologic CR right, as, a, as an endpoint? Do you think that's the, the endpoint that we should be using for newly diagnosed AL amyloidosis trials? I actually, I do. I know the FDA doesn't agree. I mean, it's only good for accelerated approval, but not sort of the final. They want more than that. But, you know, complete hematologic response has correlated so well in the AL space with outcomes that I actually, you know, I think that CR rate with combined with looking at early death and perhaps quality of life would be the penultimate type of endpoint because the patients, thankfully, live, quote, too long. I mean, if they survive that first year, patients are living a long time, which is wonderful. But when you're having to make decisions and getting approvals for drugs, and having to wait five, 10 years, that's a pretty big lift. And so I think that there is room to really look at, kind of trust the data that CR has correlated so well with outcomes. And I feel a little differently about CR in amyloid as I do in, than I do in multiple myeloma, because in multiple myeloma, the M spike is a tumor marker, it's a surrogate. Whereas in amyloid, it is the means of death. It's those light chains. I mean, yes, the plasma cells are making it, but those light chains are what are the building blocks for the amyloid. And that's what's killing patients, right? And so I, getting rid of that and showing that's gone, I think is very powerful, as long as you're not killing patients off as you're doing it or making them wish they were dead because your therapy was so horribly toxic, which is not the case with a DARA VCD kind of program. And could you sort of build on, uh, speaking about endpoints, what the results in Andromeda were in some of the secondary endpoints, organ response rate, major organ deterioration, and overall survival? How did they look in Andromeda? Yeah, again, so twice as good for everything in terms of organ, in terms of cardiac response, hematologic response, at least twice as good. And that is so important. And so I think that is an important endpoint as well to sort of be showing that because I think that is a good surrogate, especially cardiac improvements. And the, I mean, again, the heart is what kills people. 
I mean, it's horrible when patients go on dialysis because it affects quality of life, but you don't have to die of renal failure, but sudden death or just miserable congestive heart failure dwindles is a pretty miserable thing. And so if we are getting improvements in that parameter, I think that's important. The MODPFS, which is major organ deterioration, progression-free survival, is kind of a it's a, a wannabe, it's a good attempt uh, to try to do something interesting and better. But the reality is uh, patients, so the, the, the major organ deterioration is they get a heart transplant. So cardiac deterioration by that definition is they get a heart transplant or some kind of artificial um, device, or they go on dialysis as sort of are the major organ deteriorations. And those events sort of don't happen. And then it's hematologic progression and hematologic progression, unfortunately, is one of the weakest parts in our in the world of amyloid because it was sort of designed in the era when we didn't have such effective therapies. And so getting a DFLC of 100 mg per liter or 10 mg per deciliter, people didn't, quote, mind waiting for the light chain to go up that high and declare progression because they really had nothing else to do. So it was, okay, we'll call it progression when we get here, and then we'll sort of circle back to do an alkylator all over again or something like that. But when there are a number of therapies available to patients now, getting to that progression state of such a high DFLC is not that feasible. There is sort of that relapse from CR. So most of the hematologic progressions are really going to be people who went IFE negative, or they went, they had a normal free light chains and, or they, and they had normal free light chains, but then one of those two things changed. Those are going to be most of the progressions. But I think that for those patients that hadn't achieved CR, getting a true hematologic progression based on current definitions. Yeah, that's very insightful interpretation of the different endpoints and their relative importance. Importantly, this trial didn't include patients with stage 3, 3B AL amyloidosis, who are, of course, the sickest patients and have a high early mortality, even with the normal agents. How do you approach uh, stage 3B patients in your practice? Yeah, so I will either go with a DVD, so a DARA, the ortezomib, DEX, or sometimes I'll use the, the full quadruplet. Last year at ASH, there were two posters. One was the EN. EMN uh, collaboration where they use single agent daratumumab and they found that they could get in the 3B population and they found that they could get uh, a VGPR rate or better than a VGPR in about almost 50% of patients, CR in about 21% and then an additional PR in 24% or so. And so that was pretty good, just single-agent daratumumab. There was also another poster from China, and they had they combined the 3A and the 3B patients, so it wasn't pure 3B, but they were just, they dropped the cytoxin and they just used DARA-VD, and they ended up with a VGPR rate of in two-thirds of their patients and CR in 45%. And so that actually looked really quite good, and they didn't report high mortality. Obviously, the dexamethasone, you want to use it um, at a maximum of 20 milligrams once a week. The bortezomib preferably is going to be sub-Q and weekly is the schedule. And you just also just have to be really meticulous in just managing the overall patient, being mindful that you give them dex on Tuesday, because that's their treatment day, they may end up with fluid retention. And so they need to be doing daily weights. Uh, and if their weight goes up more than if they're, if they're on steady state diuretic, they may have to like double the diuretic for a day or two. Uh, or if they're not on steady state diuretic, then they may need to, for just a couple of days around the dexamethasone treatment day. So again, that supportive care, making sure that they, they have diuretic as appropriate with potassium supplementation. Um, is going to be key. You don't want to dry, uh, dry the um, severe cardiac patients out too much because they do need some volume on board in order to maintain cardiac output. So you have to really find that sweet spot in them. Um, the other thing you also want to make sure when you're dealing with patients with advanced cardiac is that you 
if you're working with a cardiologist, that they have some experience with patients with amyloid cardiomyopathy and specifically AL cardiomyopathy. And what I mean by that is that the heart failure cocktail, afterload reduction with ACE inhibitors and beta blocker to reduce the heart rate and all that is sort of, that's great for systolic heart failure, but patients with AL have diastolic heart failure. And that kind of program will make those patients crump like nobody's business. And so if making sure that they aren't on beta blockers and probably not going to be on an ACE inhibitor unless they have brutal hypertension and they actually need it, but not letting them sort of go off on this crazy path um, because it can be dangerous. Uh, and a lot of these patients do need to be a little bit tachycardic, sinus tach, a heart rate of 100 um, or 105 or something. I mean, some of them actually do need that heart rate to maintain cardiac output. Now let's talk about the response assessment in ALM allodosis. Since there are subtle but very important differences with response assessment in myeloma versus, can you tell you, can you tell us how you assess a hematologic response in ALM allodosis and what is your goal for a hematologic response? Yeah. So in AL, it is mostly about the light chains. Again, most patients with AL don't have big M spikes by serum protein electrophoresis. And again, because it is the light chain that's the building block, most of the focus is on, on the light chain until you get to the status of complete hematologic response. And then you care about the intact immunoglobulin. So well, the way we sort of look at it is we talk in terms of the difference between the involved and uninvolved light chain. Just that way, you're sort of a wee bit correcting for renal dysfunction, because if you have a little renal dysfunction, both the kappa and the lambda will go up even in a normal person. So you're sort of just compensating. And so you look at the DFLC, and uh, a partial response is going to be a 50% reduction. Um, so that sounds relatively familiar to what we do in myeloma. And again, we're not think if there is a little bit of an M spike, we're sort of just ignoring it for the purpose of a, a, a partial hematologic response. If the very good partial response is defined differently, instead of going with the 90% reduction, as it is in multiple myeloma, if what we're looking at is getting a DFLC below four mg per deciliter or 40 mg per liter, depending on which units you're measuring. And that's the definition of VGPR. And then finally, when you get to a complete hematologic response in amyloid, it's all about the bloodstream. It's not, the bone marrow is not required, though more and more I think we want to do it, but the official definition doesn't require a bone marrow. But here now you need to have a negative immunofixation as well as a normalization of the free light chains, essentially. You want, again, when you have so normalization of the free light chain ratio, again, if they're on something like DARA, they may have really completely suppressed light chain. So again, the fact that certainly if the involved free light chain is lower than the uninvolved, that also will satisfy a, a response. Um, so those are kind of the definitions. More and more now we're looking at things like MRD and all the rest, but in the official current day hematologic response, it's it's the bone marrow isn't essential, though I think many of us in our practice, we're going to do a bone marrow and take a look and see what's going on there to understand what's happening. And then using similar techniques, looking for MRD, we're not in a position to really do something with that information. I would argue we're probably not in a position in the myeloma space either to do something with that MRD information, though I think it's worthy of study. We know that in AL, the, definitely the if you have a MRD negative marrow, albeit by high resolution flow or by NGS, that the it appears that you have a, a, a higher organ response rate and you also have a better uh, PFS in terms of overall survival. So far, there hasn't been um, a signal there in terms of MRD negative, but that just may be immaturity of data and so forth. Yeah. 
And talking about the organ response, focusing mainly on heart and kidney, how do you assess organ response in ALM allodosis? Yeah. So kidney is actually easier just because urine protein. So currently it's a 24-hour urine total protein. And then does it reduce by 30% or 60% or does it completely normalize? So it used to be a 50% reduction. And then there was a modification saying 30% is good enough. And now Dr. Mukhtar from our institution has been published separately, but now has led a multinational sort of validation of this sort of tiered organ response, both kidney and, well, actually kidney, heart and liver. It's sort of saying that you can have a VGPR and a partial response and a complete response organ response. So for, for the kidney, it's all about proteinuria and it's not M-spike. It's just non-specific proteinuria because AL um, mostly affects the um, the glomerulus of the kidney. And so typically the tubular function is preserved. And so it's less of it. Um, some patients will have um, impaired EGFRs, but the majority don't, especially at, at diagnosis. And then for the cardiac, we follow NT pro BMP uh, predominantly. Understanding that's a very imperfect test. A patient has Chinese food with monosodium glutamate or salt or whatever, and their NT pro BMP can go up. And that doesn't mean that they have an organ progression. So as as it's imperfect, but I think if you look at, you have to look at trends and this is true for everything. I mean, even immunoglobulin light chains and everything, I always sort of tell patients two points in medicine, you can't extrapolate a line with two points. So you need three, four points to kind of figure out what the real trend is. And so that's how you go about it. And, and again, it's 30%, 60% reduction of that. It's not unusual. You use a little dexamethasone methazone and even bortezomib, and that can raise the NT pro BNP a little. So you have to kind of use common sense a little in that those that first month or two. It's going up mildly and you're doing really well with uh, with your diuretic management and heart failure management. I wouldn't lose too much sleep if the immunoglobulin, if the free light chains are going in the right direction. I would say kind of just be patient with it. You, organ response will lag behind hematologic response quite significantly. The metaphor I use with patients is if you imagine you have like a hundred guys placing, building a brick wall there at the front of the line building, and you have one guy that's assigned to the back of the wall and you say, take down that wall while they're laying the wall, that's not going to go very well. And in, in essence, your body is that one guy trying to take down the amyloid while still you have those light chains kind of being put down because the plasma cells are there and whatnot. But if we can make those those light chains go away, kill those plasma cells, those hundred guys at the front or a thousand guys at the front of the line go away. Now your body has a fighting chance to take that wall down, but they're not going to do it overnight. It's going to take a significant amount of time. So we can measure hematologic response month by month very easily, but organ response, you have to be patient with. And so again, it, for a cardiac response, it's going to be a 30% reduction can take almost medium time is about 10 months for renal and liver, a 30% reduction in proteinuria and alkaline phosphatase respectively is about six months and time to maximum organ response is between two and three years. So you just really have to be patient. It's, again, you could get rid of all the light chains and you can get rid of the plasma cells and all the rest, but the body is going to take time to heal. And so you just sit back and watch and wait. So Dr. Dispensary, when do you do a response assessment and, and do you pivot if someone's not getting the response that you want? Yeah, that's a really important question. Again, we're so fortunate because the majority of people with Darasibor-D do respond. But if they don't, within if we're not even seeing a partial response within two cycles, I'd be really worried that this is just not the regimen for them. And this is true in newly diagnosed. It's true in relapse. You really need to look at hematologic response. And after two, maybe three months, 
think about pivoting if we're not seeing any response at all. And you could argue if you're not seeing a VGPR, even at three, four months, do you need to change things up? Now, you could argue if they're on Darasiborg, you what's left, because you have some of the very best therapies right there. That said, you do have the IMIDs. You have to be careful with IMIDs because they can cause cardiac toxicity. If the patient is a translocation 1114, you can move into the Nidoclax. There are potentially other options. We don't use carfilzomib often in patients because it does appear to be cardiac toxic, but the patient is nerve only or maybe kidney only. Using a stronger PI might be appropriate. And of course, clinical trials. But that idea of if it Dara, especially Dara Cyborg D, you get quick hematologic responses. And yes, they deepen over time. So you don't have to have perfection immediately, but you do definitely want to be thinking if you're not seeing at least a partial response by two months, you have to really think differently. And by four months, if you don't have a VGPR, I would be getting a little antsy and at least scratching around trying to find other possibilities. So now we will focus on one of the most controversial topics in amyloidosis, that is autologous transplant. So before we go into the specifics, what are the parameters that you use at Mayo Clinic to define transplant eligibility? So it goes back a little bit to what we had talked about at the beginning. It's about the heart. So basically, it's a hard stop if the, the troponin, high sensitivity troponin T is above 70 that's like the biggest, I mean, obviously if the NT proban P is, we had a paper at 5,000 that predicts, it doesn't predict as well, but very advanced heart, hard stop, very low blood pressure is a pretty hard stop as well. Those patients, anybody you give high dose melphalan to, whether they're a myeloma patient or any transplant patient that gets high dose chemotherapy, they all lose 20 to 30 points of systolic blood pressure. And so if you're starting with a blood pressure of 80, and then you get that sort of zing of reduced blood pressure, it's a tough road. So folks with a blood pressure seated at under 90, and and that will drop even further as they stand, I, very suspect of. So those are really the biggest, I mean, you want adequate lung function, but those are the real big bad stops. Now, the other thing now that is a little bit different is do you, because we are doing induction pre-transplant, so we are doing a Darasibor D for a few months before we collect stem cells and do the transplant, if the patient's in a CR and they're coming to collect their stem cells, do you transplant them? Yes or no? And I would say if a patient is CR MRD negative at that point, to me, that's a hard stop. I just don't see the point in doing it. Now, if they're really young, maybe you'll collect stem cells at that point. But I, I just, it's hard for me to justify going forward and, and doing that. In terms of if they're in a very good partial response, I could justify going forward, especially if they have more of those myeloma-like features. So if it's somebody who had 30% bone marrow plasma cells, or if they had one of the, even the 1Q, I'd say, hey, this might be a really good consolidation. Let's, let's keep going here. I, I think they're low enough risk based on other factors to go forward. Um, but the response status, I think, I mean, it's not eligibility, but it's the decision to transplant or not. Now, that said, is that right? I don't know. We don't have long-term survival data for Darasibor D. We know that patients who, in the old era, even before we did any induction, 30 to 40% of patients would achieve a CR, and those patients have median survivals. 15 years. So they just, they can keep going and going. And so how durable is Dara VCD going to be? It's anybody's guess. But I think, again, putting somebody at risk, if they had a low quote tumor burden to start, and now they're in a really deep uh, response, like a, a CR and MRD negative or close to MRD negative, I think I would probably uh, pull the plug on moving forward with transplant in that kind of a patient. 
Yeah, so, so if somebody is in like a hematologic CR, unless they have one of the high-risk features, as you said, the high bone marrow plasma cell or high-risk fish cytogenetics, you would typically not consolidate with a transplant, right? Yeah, yeah. and that's yeah, that's always a challenging decision these days with the Dallas VCD, whether you go on to maintenance or whether you transplant them. It's a data-free zone, but, it's, but you're just sort of trying to make do with what, I mean, we have, we need more time to really understand the long-term benefits of Dara VCD. We know that even methylandex, though you get a CR and these patients can have very long remissions. Again, they're not, they don't appear to be quite as long as the transplant ones. And we know in the myeloma population, again, amyloid and myeloma are not the same, but we know even when you're using something like BRD, that the PF is better if you transplant somebody than if you don't. So it's not black and white, it's very gray, but you do the best you can. So finally, to wrap up, we would love to know, to, to hear your thoughts on what do you think is the future of newly diagnosed AL amyloidosis? Do you think Dara VCD is the final destination or do you see treatment evolving in future? Mostly I'm talking about non-transplant treatment in the next 10 years. Any particular regimens or drugs in the pipeline for relapse disease that you are the most excited about to come in the frontline setting and change the paradigm? Yeah. So I think that one of the things that I am very excited about is venetoclax. On 1114 patients, again, it's not used in frontline, but I, I, in those 1114 patients, it, it can be like magic for amyloid patients who have that translocations venetoclax. So, and, and there are other BCL2 inhibitors that are sort of being looked at. So we're not there yet, but I am pretty excited and whether it needs to go with something else or just single agent, a lot to learn. The other is kind of borrowing from the myeloma world is what's the role of the bispecifics? What's the role of CAR-T? All these are big unknowns and we have a lot of work yet even to do in myeloma. And then finally, there are two trials ongoing right now with the anti-amyloid and the antibodies against amyloid fibrils, the, the NeoD drug, the bertanamib, and the KL-101 drug, and selenimab, probably said that wrong. But anyway, those two are currently in randomized trials in the most advanced cardiac patients to see if giving extra help, these antibodies that bind to amyloid fibrils, does that help patients get better sooner? So I think hopefully we'll know more within the next year or two, whether these medicines really add to that, because that would be pretty amazing if we could kind of get that amyloid out of tissues a little bit faster and improve patients' quality of life that much faster. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Dispensieri, for your time. And I, I think it was great. And uh, with amyloid being such a challenging disease to treat, and there are so many nuances here and a lot of data-free zones, and we really appreciated your uh, thought process and you know, how you approach these, this disease. We'll hopefully have you back again to discuss some of the other esoteric plasma cell disorders. And thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.